uh, my presentation tonight. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you to uh, all the Productize folks for organizing this event, to all of you for attending. Uh, I wasn't imagining this many people. I actually feel like I'm in San Francisco at a meetup. It's, they're probably not even this well attended, so it's really cool. Um, yeah, round of applause. That's awesome. <laughs> so my talk tonight is called Designing Your Future Self, uh, which is kind of a very lofty title for a presentation. Um, and also very techy and nerdy, I'll admit. Um, but really what I'm trying to get at here is that if you've heard of sort of the jobs to be done framework or similar things, uh, the notion is that people don't use a product necessarily just to complete a task. It fits into a larger picture of what they're trying to do in a, in a bigger sense and who they're trying to be ultimately for some products. Um, so really I wanna help you understand how to think about human behavior and how that larger picture uh, sits in someone's mind, and then actually turn that into things in your product, designs, features, et cetera, uh, that will help people achieve this larger task they're trying to achieve. Um, so that's what we're gonna cover tonight. Uh, so you've already heard a little bit about me, so I'll skip over this. Um, but really, the one thing I wanna emphasize is that uh, I never really wanted to work in technology. Actually, my dad is a software developer, and I always thought like, yeah, that's cool, but it's kinda nerdy. I don't know, it's not really me. <laughs> but over time, I became really interested in human behavior and how you can influence human behavior for the good. Because I think a lot of times we, we set out with good intentions, we want to do certain things, but we just can't really stick to that New Year's resolution or whatever it is. Uh, and then when I saw the release of the first iPhone, that kind of blew my mind. I thought, now technology is actually with you all the time, and it can ping you, and it can nudge you, and it can do all these things. And I thought, this is actually going to be an incredible marriage between the world of behavioral psychology and this new device, and all the devices that are around us all the time. So that's when I thought, I gotta get into this tech thing, I gotta learn about this, I gotta get involved in designing products that affect millions of people. So here's some of the places I've done that. I actually started out working at a nonprofit called Earn, which is in the bottom left there. Um, we designed an online savings program for people who are low income uh, to help them build the habit of savings, and that's what really got me hooked into this marriage of technology and, uh, and behavioral psychology. And then a little bit more about my story. So I'm originally from Providence, Rhode Island. Um, I was born in a Portuguese family. My entire family is from San Miguel and <laughs> in the Açores. Uh, and then after living there most of my life, I moved to California and spent about nine years there. And then when I got tired of paying thousands of dollars a month for rent, uh, I hit the road and I traveled for about a year and a half and really wanted to settle somewhere for a while and, uh, and kind of build a new home. So that's what uh, brought me here to Lisbon. So I've been here only four months. I'm pretty fresh. I'm open to recommendations for restaurants, places to visit, et cetera, so let me know afterwards. Uh, but this is my new home. So I just uh, started with ISO about a month ago, um, and I'll be here, you know, hopefully long term. So, yeah. <laughs> so let's start with uh, what is behavioral design, kind of set some context from the beginning. Uh, I've chose this photo because I think it really represents what the heart of the matter is, and that's Every day we each make hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of decisions. A lot of them very, very much sit below the level of consciousness, like, you know, uh, I don't know, what you're gonna wear for, for your pants. <laughs> like, so you don't really think about it a lot of times, right? Um, but some of them kind of sit at a level of consciousness or maybe just below like what you're gonna have for breakfast. And all of those things add up over time to kind of influence your health, influence your happiness, influence all sorts of things in your life. 
And for better or worse, these choices that we're making are influenced uh, by advertisers, by all kinds of things, people who design products, like people in this room. Um, and if you're not paying attention to how that's designed as the person creating that solution, and certainly as a consumer, then you kind of run the risk of being you know, put down certain paths you may not want to be on. Uh, so behavioral design is, <laughs> is designing to influence human behavior. That's kind of the high-level definition. Uh, and this is my definition, so if you look online, you might find something different. I don't know. Um, and I think it really is about helping people make choices in their best interest. This is kind of my positive spin on it, um, while maintaining their sense of, of autonomy and choice. So I think two things to point out here. I think it's really about influence, not coer coercion. So it's not about <coughs> forcing people to do something. And that's why that second part is really important. I think keeping choice is really important. So if you're designing products that are helping to influence people to do certain things, uh, I think it's really important to help people stay in the seat of kind of making that choice. Um, one example of this I'll share from Credit Karma. So it actually has implications not only for the user, but for their business. Uh, we used to have, we had really great uh, recommendation algorithms to kind of help people find the best credit card for them. So after a while, these, these algorithms got so good, they were like, well, we know for you, the best credit card is definitely the Chase Sapphire. So we're just going to say, here's the Chase Sapphire. You should definitely get this card. It's going to be amazing. And we saw conversion rates dip like crazy. And then when we started saying, okay, well, maybe we'll show them the top three and we'll recommend the Chase Sapphire. So we say, okay, well, here's the top, top three, and we really recommend Chase Sapphire conversion rates shot through the roof. Because, and when we actually did the qualitative research on this, we found that people really resented not having a choice. It's like, who is this company to tell me this one card is the right one for me? But when we all of a sudden put it in context of a few different options that we thought were good, and we gave them the nudge of the recommendation, suddenly it felt like they were making a choice. Uh, so it actually is good for business, not just for users. So preserving choice is really important. And so all this matters because you know, we don't always do what we want to do, what we, we set out to do. We have good intentions a lot of times. Uh, and even though we're trying to do our best in our heart, <laughs> we don't always live up to that. So I think uh, you know, as product designers, if we can set out and help people do the things that they really want to do and commit to the behaviors they really want to commit to, uh, then we're not only doing them, them a service, but we're also helping them get in, engaged more with our product. Uh, and it's good for both sides. But I want to remind you that this can obviously be used for evil, too. So make sure to all use these tools for good. I'm about to share some very powerful behavioral psychology and behavioral design principles with you. So I don't want to see any like black magic out there on the internet after this. <laughs> so why does this matter? Uh, so I think the business case here, there's obviously a personal case. Helping people do their best and be their best uh, leads to your product being valued long term. That's what we all want. We want long-term engagement with our product. And that really translates eventually to more frequent usage and retention. And retention is what everybody's after, especially if you're a subscription business. You want people to keep staying engaged with your product. Uh, so just a quick uh, example here. When I was at Fitbit, which is the activity tracking, oops, you good? Okay. <laughs> uh, when I was at Fitbit, which was the, the activity tracking band, which of course now there are 100 competitors, um, you know, the story was always people would buy these things, usually around New Year's, when they'd set their New Year's resolution. They'd start walking, they'd start running, it was all great. Two months later, maybe three months later, it would they'd forget where the charger was, and they're like, ah, I don't really want to walk. And they would kind of stop using the product. So there was no way to keep people retained long term. 
probably kept them long, uh, around longer than, say, like a treadmill would have. Um, but still, we had a really hard time uh, with retention. And so for us, actually, behavioral design principles were super critical to getting people to continue to use the product uh, so we could retain them long term. So I'm going to share with you a few different behavioral design models. These are essentially frameworks for how you can think about behavior. Um, and then we can dive into um, how they work. And then I'll share lots of examples and a lot of GIFs um, <laughs> on how to translate that into designs and features for your product. So these are the three that I'm going to talk about. Uh, on the left here is BJ Fogg. He runs something called uh, the Center for Persuasive Technology at Standard Stanford University. Uh, super interesting guy. I highly recommend you go to his website and nerd out for hours like I would. Um, he works a lot with technology companies and speaks all over the place about his work. Um, I'll also I include a uh, slide in here on resources. I have links to his center and books and things that you guys can check out at the end. Nireal is like the Silicon Valley dream child right now. Everybody loves him. Uh, he wrote a book called Hooked, which is all about uh, behavioral design. Some of you, I see heads nodding, so it seems like people have heard about it. Um, so I'll talk about his Hooked model a little bit. And then Charles Duhigg is actually a New York Times writer who just became fascinated with behavior. And so he wrote a book called The Power of Habit. And he describes the habit loop, which is actually very similar to Nereal, so I might not spend too much time on that. Uh, but these three folks, uh, definitely worth checking out their work in more depth. But I'll give you kind of the primer today so you can walk away knowing a few things. So we'll start with BJ Fogg. And BJ Fogg basically says that behavior happens when three things occur. So there's motivation, ability, and a trigger. So very simple equation, uh, but let's break that down. So uh, a person needs to be sufficiently motivated to do something. So for example, if I have no money and my friends want to go out, I may want to go out, but I don't have any money, so my motivation's like, well, I don't want to go into debt, so I'm not going to go out. Uh, that's also related to ability, right? So you actually have to be able to do it. So if you had a broken leg going out, it might be a little bit hard. So <laughs> you might not want to go out. And then the trigger, if a friend didn't call me or no one messaged me, how sad, um, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that trigger to actually get out the door. So he broke this down as a very simple equation so that he could explain a whole bunch of behaviors in a very simple way. And he actually maps that out on a two by two grid. So on one grid, on one side you have motivation that can be low or high. And on the other side, you have ability that something can be hard to do or easy to do. And then he plots out what he calls an action lines. And essentially, I'm going to, sorry, camera, I'm going to move back here just to get closer. Um, when someone's motivation is low and the task is hard to do, if you can switch to the next one, one more, then any triggers you give them will fail. So they won't do it. Um, even if their motivation is really, really high and the thing is super hard to do, it'll still fail. And on the other side, if something is really, really easy to do, but the motivation is super, super low, again, they're not going to do it. So the, this is the sweet spot, when the motivation and the ability are sufficient that it gets above that line. Super simple framework, but also explains things very clearly, very well. Um, now, the hard bit is how do you figure out what someone's motivation is, and how do you figure out what their ability is? Really, really hard. Um, but there are some ways that I'll talk about later that we can start to think about that. So I want to give an example of how we use this uh, at a company that I worked with, uh, which is Fitbit. So the problem that we saw in uh, this, this moment in time we're working on this was that 
a lot of people weren't hitting their daily goals. So if you know Fitbit, it's all about 10,000 steps, X calories, certain number of hours of sleep. And we're finding that, especially with 10,000 steps, I think it was like 70 or 80% of people weren't hitting that in a given week, which is kind of crazy. It's like the main part of your value proposition is the buzz that people get when it's like, hey, you hit your 10,000 steps, great job. Most people were not getting that experience. So we did a little bit of research to understand not only what was happening quantitatively, like people weren't hitting this goal, and what was their actually beha actual behavior like in terms of steps. We also did some qualitative research and found that for some people, steps actually wasn't the most important thing. They, were, they cared more about calories because they were trying to lose weight. And that was a more direct correlation to, say, the food they were tracking in another app. Um, so knowing all of that, we kind of we made this new feature called personal goal setting, which has essentially allowed people to first opt into the goal that they cared about most, but then most importantly, actually tailor the goal to where they were. And we used some you know, smart-ish smart uh, machine learning algorithms to kind of set smart defaults for people. Um, and really what that did was it first helped them choose a more meaningful goal, which increased the motivation, because if I'm more motivated to you know, work on my sleep and I set a goal around that, then I'm going to actually track that and keep up with it. And then we also used these smarter defaults, so we lowered the ability for some people where the bar we were initially setting might have been too high. Um, you know, even if their motivation was high, they weren't actually hitting it, so over time, not something they wanted to keep doing. So a very simple example of how we could use these principles, and we did. We, we actually got to meet BJ Fogg, which is cool, and he came in and gave a talk with us um, to actually translate that into a product experience. Cool. So next, Nira Yal. I think they're going to share these slides so people in the back who are like squinting to try to see what's going on. Uh, <laughs> we'll get these as well out to people. Uh, so this is his hooked model. And it's basically a four-step model that, again, describes uh, behavior. So it starts with a trigger. So something triggers you to do something. Uh, and he describes two different types of triggers, internal and external. External is easy. It's like a notification. We all get those every day. Or maybe it's a friend calling you or telling you something or you know, an advertisement you see on the street, external triggers. Internal are more interesting, I think. So that's like, I'm bored, or I'm hungry, or, or something like that that just kind of happens inside of you that makes you think, I need to do something right now. So starting with that, that usually leads to some kind of action. So you get a notification on your phone, you check your email, and then you probably go to Instagram, and then you lose 20, 30 minutes. Um, so that's the action step. And then there's some sort of reward that you get for doing that action. So you were hungry, you ate, you're not hungry. Cool. Um, and then the last bit was something that Nier kind of added to, because the first three steps are kind of similar to Charles Duhigg's habit loop. The last bit is something that he added specifically in the context of technology products, which is investment. And I think this is super interesting. So when you think about Instagram as an example, right, you get a notification that someone liked your photo or whatever it is. I don't know, because I turned those notifications off. <laughs> uh, you go in and you check the thing. You're like, oh, this is amazing. Love all the content you're seeing. You feel rewarded. But then you comment back, or you like back, or you do something in Instagram. You're investing in that experience, which then allows Instagram to trigger you again in some other way, because now you've told them that you want to be annoyed later because you just commented on this thing. So that bit in terms of keeping people in that loop is really important. Nirial talks a lot about how that essentially loads the next trigger, uh, which can be a very compelling and powerful design tool. So I want to use an example, again, to illustrate. I'll use Credit Karma. So Credit Karma is a, a company I worked for 
and they're most well known for uh, providing you with your credit score and your credit report for free. Uh, I don't think there's, is there a credit score in Portugal? Is that a thing here? No, okay, cool. Usually, most places I feel like don't because it's kind of a weird concept and yeah, anyway. Um, so if you go to the next slide, so usually for a user on Credit Karma, the trigger can actually oftentimes be internal. So uh, you feel like, man, I need to get a hold of my finances. And actually sometimes it can be external in the sense of like, I have a past due bill. I need to get in control of my finances. Uh, so then they'll visit Credit Karma, check their credit score, check their finances overall. And from us, they would receive advice and reassurance and suddenly they feel like, okay, I have my stuff together, I can take care of this, I, I got this. And in return, they're actually providing us with more data because a lot of what Credit Karma is built on is these machine learning algorithms that take into account user behavior, uh, data from their credit report, et cetera, et cetera. So every time they visit the site, every time they're navigating around, checking out different products, they're actually investing without really knowing in the product experience, which is then personalizing it further for them. So a very simple uh, loop that's happening here, but very thoughtfully designed to get people to kind of keep going back into the experience. And then lastly, I'll just touch on Charles Duhigg's habit loop. So again, you'll probably see the similarity here to, um, to Nereal's, the first three steps. The cue is the trigger, very simple. The routine is the action, and the reward is the reward. Um, so this is, I mean, a lot of this research on behavioral design actually started with animals. Uh, like one of the most well-known researchers was B.F. Skinner, and he, he basically just worked with dogs, and he's like, Sadly, human beings kind of behaved a lot like animals. <laughs> uh, and you could kind of reuse a lot of those same principles to think about human behavior uh, and how it works and replicate that to kind of train people, for lack of a better term. <laughs> um, but I'm going to talk about later how it's actually not that simple, that human beings are a little bit more complicated. So don't worry, human beings, we got it. So I want to talk a little bit about putting this into practice. I'm going to give you five tips and ten gifts. Uh, for successful behavior design. The first is going to be related to triggers, second actions, third rewards, fourth investment, but the fifth is where we're going to kind of go beyond the animal world and we're going to talk about context and identity and fun stuff. It's kind of hard to see the gifts, but uh, first I wanted to emphasize that internal triggers really rule the day. So notifications are cool, <coughs> advertisements can work, but what's happening in someone's head, that is like what's going to dominate their behavior more times than not. So when you're thinking about how to apply these things to your product, you know, you obviously can't get inside your customer's head, thankfully, I would say. <laughs> um, but you should try to, as much as possible, be empathetic with where they might be, where their heads might be at in different points of using your product, not using your product, to try to understand what those internal triggers might be and how you can have them be a lead-in to using your products. Because the, the sweet spot is when the internal trigger matches the external trigger. So you, notif you notify someone at the right time with the right message that matches kind of where their mindset was at. And this is why I think social networking products kind of were successful in some part, was because a lot of times people were bored. That was the internal trigger. And what Facebook and you know Instagram and Pinterest and all these people were able to tap into is like, well, if you're bored, I mean, we got lots of stuff you can scroll through. <laughs> and it's kind of, it was the perfect match. It was like, okay, well, we're going to trigger you to kind of, you know, check out a bunch of your friends' stuff and solve your boredom. That's great. 
Uh, and also, just to emphasize, I think it's really worth investing in triggers. They're a high ROI uh, feature if you do them right. So, um, you know, actually setting up a good notification <laughs> system, uh, you know, triggering people based on time of day, based on different segments of that audience, based on different messages, et cetera. It can be uh, some of the easier things you'll design. Uh, it's not like building a whole new feature set or anything, um, but can actually lead to a lot of the behavior that you're looking for in your product. So definitely worth investing in. And as always, experiment and test. Uh, I think it's really important to try out those different things that I just mentioned. So you know, what different groups might you pick out of your user base to try experimenting with different messages and different times of day and all those kinds of things and actually see, is it driving the behavior that you want it to drive in your product experience? And then always keep ability in mind. So not everybody's going to be as awesome as Spider-Man here. Um, so when people are actually using your product, think about, is this person in this context actually going to be able to do the thing that I'm asking them to do right now? Um, and if not, should I actually make the thing easier? Or Maybe they're really, really motivated because they just signed up and they just went through this onboarding flow and all this stuff. Maybe I actually need to ask them to do something a little bit harder and, in, and make that investment early on because the motivation level is high. And one thing you know I've done in, in past products I've worked on is um, when you don't see someone for a while, when they kind of stopped using the thing that they were using, uh, the first place to start usually is like, well, maybe we'll ask them to do something a little bit easier. In Fitbit, this was kind of gold. It was like if people weren't actually hitting the 10,000 steps or whatever the behavior was, we actually would have a lot of discussions, heated debates internally of like, is it okay to tell someone to just go out for a five-minute walk? And, you know, because people were so married to the idea of like, well, it's got to be what the American Heart Association recommends. And it's like, well, actually, no, the people who are healthiest are the people who just don't stop. Even if some days it's like a five-minute walk, and other days it's a five-mile run, it's like you just got to keep people on it. So really, it's about trying to understand where that person's motivation, et cetera, is, and giving them the right level of ability at that moment. So, and like I said, mind the motivation. So people aren't always motivated. Motivation is a very fickle thing, uh, and people are motivated by different things. So, for example. You know, money, uh, you know, we might have access to a lot of money at one point, but then not a lot of money at another point. You know, and right before your paycheck, you have less money. Right after, you have a lot of money. So your motivation to spend money is going to be very different throughout the month. Um, energy level. You talk to me at 3 p.m., probably not going to be that energized. <laughs> probably not going to be very motivated to do something physical. Uh, but if you talk to me at 9 in the morning, maybe a little bit more motivated. So try to keep that in mind. It runs in waves. Um, you can't really control it. People always think that they can, but uh, it's better to actually work with it and try to understand where people are at. Actually, BJ Fogg has um, a really cool thing he calls the motivation wave to kind of explain this phenomenon, so definitely recommend you check that out. I love this cat. Uh, he's got it. He's got it. No. no. Oh. <laughs> um, so I think it's really important to push people to do the hard stuff in your product, but only a little bit. So in general, when you think about it in that curve that we showed earlier, you kind of want to always be on the edge of the ability. So you know you don't want to make things so easy that people kind of get bored. And it's like, you know, if we set the goal at Fitbit to a thousand steps and people hit it every day and they're like, well, this is boring. Uh, it's kind of like think about good game design, right? Like you don't want to win the game every single time you play it. Like every single time you sit down, you win and win and win and win. It's kind of boring after a while. 
You want it to be just enough of a challenge where it's maybe 70% or 60% of the time you win, but then that other 30, 40% makes you want to go back and learn and try again and be better. So push, but only a little bit. And then remember that failure is going to happen. <laughs> you're going to get knocked down, and you're going to get back up and keep getting knocked down like this little kid. Um, so keep in mind there's parts of your experience where people will fail, and you have to kind of manage that failure. And to me, the simplest yet most effective design tool is just the words you speak to your users. So in those moments where you think someone might have stretched their abilities and, and fallen, uh, think about how you can identify those moments and communicate to them in a way that feels encouraging, supportive, et cetera, um, and takes into account that larger journey they're on. I think that's, that can be really impactful with very little investment. <coughs> and make sure you delight with the rewards. So uh, making your experience feel rewarding is really important. I think a lot of times it can be an afterthought. So even something as simple as someone com completing a registration flow, we were just talking about this at ISO the other day. So we're, we're having people do, for example, like ID verification, kind of boring. How can we spice that up so it feels like once you've completed a step, we're actually congratulating you, making you feel like you accomplished something, uh, speaking to you in a way that makes you excited to keep using the, the product and being in the experience. Um, it may not ever feel this good to use a product, I don't know, maybe depending on the product you use, uh, but always be thinking about how you can find these meaningful actions in your product and reward them with something that feels equally meaningful. And require investment. So you're on this journey with your customer together, just like Rocky and Apollo Creed here. <laughs> so uh, make sure that you're not afraid to ask them to give a little bit more to the, the product because if you're working in this kind of product that's about people sort of helping themselves become a better version of themselves, uh, then you're, on, you're only kind of facilitating them asking more of themselves. So don't be afraid to, to push and ask for that investment when possible. And last but not least, uh, follow your dreams. Uh, <laughs> so if, again, if we sort of follow the main premise that people are using these products a lot of times to become a better version of themselves, that's a very psychological process, a very emotional process. Uh, so don't be afraid to actually speak to that and you know, make that very transparent and open in the product experience. Use supportive language, use encouraging language, and actually you know, try to connect a, a, a little bit more emotionally with your customers. I mean, this might not map to every single product, uh, but in a lot of cases it does, and there are opportunities to actually engage in that way a little bit more directly with people. So don't be afraid to at the very least, experiment with that. Because at the end of the day, I mean, to me, that's the, the sort of potential downside of working in technology is like we have this ability to reach millions of people, but it can be really easy to forget that there are people on the other side of that. And people that, for example, when they're using Credit Karma, dealing with your finances can be very, you know, you might feel shame about that. You might feel guilt about that. You might feel nervous about certain aspects of it. So actually speaking to that and, and kind of confronting the idea that people are trying to improve some aspect of themselves that, that might be a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I think that that's really important and can sort of open up that two-way empathy thing that makes people trust you more and, and invest in your brand. So that's the end. <laughs> so like I said, I'm new here. I would love it to keep in touch. Uh, email, Instagram. 
Um, and then last slide is just a bunch of resources. Um, so definitely check out all these books and articles and things. There's so much good stuff written out there. Definitely encourage you guys to dive in deeper if you're interested. Thank you.